Hello, everybody, and welcome to MN Sports Talk. I am Mike Mensing. I am here alongside my co-host, Nick Huffman. Say hello, Nick. Hello, everybody, and happy Monday. And we have a great show for you guys today. Uh, really quick, you can find us on social media. Our Instagram is MN underscore Sports Talk, and on Facebook, M forward slash N Sports Talk. Again, we have a great show for you today. We are going to be covering a few different subjects. Uh, we're going to start uh, with The Last Dance, episode three and four. Uh, we're going to get into a report along uh, the NBA restart. Some teams may be possibly seeing practice facilities within the week. Um, we're going to talk about Aaron Rodgers and the bad breakup uh, possibly happening with the Packers. Uh, we're going to have a small draft recap, and then we're going to dive deep into the Vikings draft recap as well. So to get us started off, Nick, um, I think we should start with The Last Dance. Uh, that was a great uh, two-hour sequence last night. Again, I wish it was longer. I wish we got more of it to start. Um, but we did start with Dennis Rodman in episode three. We kind of saw how he developed into uh, that X factor for the Bulls. I'm seeing his entire career starting uh, with the Pistons there. Um, I Again, I want to start with I appreciate the fact that I'm just learning a ton about the NBA in this time. Um, I just didn't know that Rodman was a big part of the bad boys in Detroit. I didn't honestly didn't even know that, um, which is funny because he was actually one of the main factors of that. Yeah. I saw a lot of that in that ESPN 30 for 30 a while back. Uh, the, the bad boy Pistons, just kind of how that whole thing broke, broke down like Isaiah Thomas, obviously. And like everybody on that roster, like had the same mentality that Rodman had, you know, work real hard, be a badass. I think he was kind of the cornerstone for just like that culture, you know, and that that definitely translated to what you were going to see once he got to Chicago. Yeah, very blue collar, fit the city. Of um, I think that was part of it as well. Just the city backed that team so much um, throughout those years as well. Uh, and that kind of developed into what we saw playing out in episode three with the Jordan rules as well. Um, as Michael Jordan was really developing into what we know today, um, those first few matchups in the playoffs were against these bad boys in Detroit. Um, and they formulated this plan to stop Jordan. Um, do you want to talk about those Jordan rules just a little bit? Yeah, man, uh, you're talking about just physically abusing them. They knew that they were the stronger team. And because at that point in time, they were playing such Jordan centric one-on-one basketball that it was physically abuse him, uh, double him and then push him to his left, uh, you know, to keep him from being dominant right side baseline uh, Lemire and Rodman would uh, take him out every time he tried to get in there. They didn't care about the fouls. They weren't too worried about things like that. They knew as long as he was removed from the situation, um, you know, physically getting to the hoop, getting to the line, being able to get momentum that they, that the Bulls had no shot. And it worked in 89 when, um, you know, the, the series in six and then in 90 went in, in seven. And he just couldn't seem to get over that hump. Right. I think uh, I can't remember who said it last night, um, but one of the quotes was, we knew that once he took flight, uh, there was nothing that we could do. Um, so our plan was to make sure that he basically stayed on the ground um, because once he was in the air, he, he just wasn't human. Um, so yeah. that's what they did. They just punished him. Um, and that's one thing too. You know, a lot of guys say uh, that LeBron would have just demolished back then or, or if the league wasn't as physical back then. And I think we're really seeing, a contrast of, of that as well. 
Um, and then obviously in episode three, uh, Rodman leaves Detroit for San Antonio. Um, Chuck Daly leaves Detroit. He really had his arm around Rodman, um, accepting him as kind of that introvert that he was when he was drafted. Um, and San Antonio, it just does not work out for him. Um, that's when he really kind of starts down that uh, bad path. Um, and Jerry Krause doesn't even want Rodman at this point. Um, he thinks he's a troublemaker, but man, all I'm thinking is this guy's kind of a bad GM all the way around. Right. Like, you know what I'm saying? He, he doesn't want to bring in talent, but he wants to ship out his talent at the same time. So yeah, I don't, I don't know about this guy. I think it's kind of weird because at this point in the Bulls franchise, he hasn't even considered, you know, when they're considering bringing Rodman in, getting rid of Pippen or getting rid of Jordan or relieving Phil, you know, or like, you know, or the, it wasn't even Phil at that point. It was the, it was, uh, no, it was Phil Jackson. It was, relieving it Phil. Was he just was, Phil. Yeah. It was like Phil for like a year or two at that point, I believe. Yeah. So like he hadn't even really thought about that, but just like to see the missteps every step of the path. I don't want to bring a problem and I don't want to pay Pippen. I don't want, you know, I'm not going to keep Phil to keep Jordan. Like all of this stuff. Jerry Krause is slowly going from the dude who built the dynasty to the guy who almost ruined basketball this documentary just just based on just dumb decisions and i understand it devil's advocate wise just because you're looking at a guy who he found phil jackson he drafted michael jordan he discovered scotty pepper he brought in rodman and then got none of the credit but dude sit sit back and kick your feet up your work is done when you got six champ five championships you know so it's just weird to see how that plays out for him right and uh to be clear, too, in, in Rodman's case, it was actually Krause's assistant who convinced him um, that with the framework that they had with Michael and Pip, uh, Rodman just wouldn't really act up. He would look at those two as uh, role models and, and wouldn't feel the need to act up to get that right. as well. So, um, And that kind of takes care of our recap for episode three. Um, overall, I thought it was obviously awesome. We got to see a ton of Dennis Rodman. Yeah, I like seeing a bunch of Robin. He's just an odd character, um, you know. For him to, and it's weird that this whole storm kind of comes together, and you see it kind of start to lock into place. Like you see it all the time. Don, dynasties are obviously taking advantage of opportunity, and then being in the right place at the right time. Um, that '89 and '90 season personified what basketball was. It was beat guys up, be physical, and, and that's how you're going to have to win those series. Well, if we take it back to the beginning of the 1990s, a 1990 season, and this is as we're getting into like episode four, um, you hear about a guy, I, I heard about a guy named Tim Grover, who we mentioned uh, in the other podcast where he'd count Jordan's steps. This guy, I went back and rewatched it, was actually writing letters to everybody in the Bulls locker room, except Michael Jordan, trying to get to be their, their coaches. That was at the beginning of the 90s season. Now they get to the end of that playoff loss and the only guy that writes him back is Michael Jordan. And he's the one that put 15 pounds on him and had everybody in that locker room buy in. And that's right around the same time Phil Jackson installs a triangle offense and Pippen starts to round out as a player. And you just start to see like this perfect storm of just timing and opportunity and talent come together and just kind of lock into place and become this force. And it's just weird to think about that none of that may happen if Tim Grover isn't around to put 15 pounds on Michael. Maybe the Pistons beat him up for a third year, you know, things like that. And then when Phil Jackson takes over, um, he's very much like Rodman. I didn't realize that he was the strong physical rebounding. 
I do acid in between games. Right. Yeah. He was New York Knicks player. Too, yeah. Holy smokes. Did I not realize you realize this guy, this guy's got, everybody talks about Bill Russell's got 11. Phil Jackson's got 13 NBA championships between being a player and a coach. Yep. So by the time he got that head coaching job, he knew how to win in a big city and take all the heat in the media attention and things like that. If it was any other coach or if he doesn't win those championships in New York, then the Bulls dynasty maybe isn't what it is. Even then, so all these delicate little butterfly effect type parts that you see like kind of feather into this thing is just astounding to me when you go back and you look at every minute detail. Yeah, it really meshes together. Uh, like you said, it's just, just kind of falls into place, kind of like a universal puzzle. You know what I mean? Just kind of falls right in there. And I mean, six rings over what, seven or eight years, dude. It's nuts. Eight years. Eight years. Eight years. Eight years. And yeah, and you got five with Kobe, you get two in New York. Uh, the other thing I pulled out of this episode, by the way, is that Carmen Electra, I don't know how old she is, but she still looks like she's in her 30s. I don't know how the hell she does it. I haven't seen her in 20 years. I remember like watching her as a kid growing up on all these different TV shows. She looked incredible. I hey, man, I got to say, it would be interesting <laughs> to have been a fly on the wall in that Vegas bedroom with Dennis Rodman and Carmen Electra's in his bed and Michael Jordan knocks on the door and she hides in the closet. Right. Car- of all people, Carmen Electra. Carmen like, Electra. That goes- yeah. and, that, and that goes to show you just like the magnitude, like the weight that Jordan carried behind him, right? Like Carmen Electra was a star. Like a right. Hollywood star. Jordan knocks on the door and she hides behind the curtain. It was, I'm like, the goat was at the door. <laughs> so it's just, it's a different time, man. It's a different area. And I have a ton of respect for everything that went on back then. Just watching like how this whole thing unfolded and then to hear about how like Rodman would come back to practice and Phil would try to punish him with conditioning. And then he would be the one that punishes everybody else because Rodman was just like this freak. He was it's always ready to go. Just insane. Insane. Speaking of ready to go, there are some NBA teams uh, that could report to practice facilities as early as May 1st. Um, What are you thinking about this? Yeah, so personally, I think this is more of a calculated risk uh, for the NBA. Okay, This is a way to protect players uh, from traveling to cities um, where the stay-at-home orders have been lifted. Like, I know that we still have ours here in place in Minnesota until the 4th. Now, imagine if D'Lo or Cat or somebody from the Wolves roster was like, oh, well, the stay-at-home order is up in Georgia. I'm going to fly down to Georgia and get my training down there. You wind up with more people in a confined space, uh, a higher risk of infection, things like that. So I think it was, okay, well, if some of them are going to be open for the sake of possibly restarting the season and it being fair, we're going to have to open up all the training facilities at one time. Um, So I think it's like calculated risk type thing versus them really want to just like get back to sports I guess they don't really have they don't have an option they don't have a choice you know you gotta weigh what it's worth versus what it could do damage wise so um, wait they're they are just opening the ones that have the stay-at-home orders lifted though aren't they no from what uh Adrian Wojnarowski tweeted and I kind of looked into it after you had mentioned it to me the other day is if they're going to open one training facility they're going to open them all to avoid other teams traveling to that state uh to get their practice in um because obviously like they've considered doing games unattended in vegas well even still they think that's too many people in a condensed area um i don't think we're going to get a season no matter how this shakes out for a couple of reasons 
Nobody's going to want to see a diminished level of play because the players haven't been practicing. I don't think the NBA is going to be able to sustain it with their TV deal and their merch and everything due to the lack of revenue without attendance. And most importantly, like I said, they risk a relapse. Nobody wants to be that first business or that first globally known sport to go back and then be like, oh, yeah, we got 20 more people sick. So I really don't think we're going to get anything that comes out of this. I think it's wishful thinking at this point that we're going to get a season, but you might get practices. Yeah, unfortunately, I personally think it's a little too soon. Um, I know we want to stay as focused on sports as possible, but uh, our lives personally may be affected um, with our state home orders not being lifted on May 4th. Um, I know Minnesota had a spike recently this past week in their death toll. Um, So I personally don't see this happening um, realistically, and I think the next NBA game that we'll actually see is probably next winter. Yeah, I I do too, and I mean – it. It's going to be up to the NBA on what the risk is. Like no, like I said, nobody wants to be that 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 first massive enterprise that causes a relapse or gets media attention for the wrong reasons. Right, um, and we we all know there's going to be a second wave. It's just like how bad is it going to be? When's it going to be? Type thing. Yeah. So I mean, like I said, there's a lot of other things other than just the sickness itself that plays into this too. You got to think of diminished product and how ready are the players physically because they have been locked up at home. Are you risking injuries? Um, it's just, it's not a good time. Basketball, unfortunately, out of all the sports was probably timing wise in the worst spot. Uh, I like that they're trying, but I just don't think it's going to happen. All right. All right, folks. Uh, we do need to take an advertisement. We do, uh, hope that you join us after the break and we look forward to diving into Aaron Rodgers and the breakup of the Packers after that. All right, and welcome back to MN Sports Talk. Uh, we're going to dive into Aaron Rodgers and the breakup of the Packers. Uh, you know, as a Minnesota guy, I definitely hate talking about the Packers, giving them any attention whatsoever, but I got to say I love to hate them and seeing something like this, oh, it just brings a smile to my face. So uh, yeah. Rodgers, um, obviously Jordan Love was selected round one by the Green Bay Packers starting this feud. Um, Rodgers came out and tweeted, I am the, still the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers. Um, and everybody, ESPN, uh, releasing articles about uh, the possible dismantling of the Green Bay Packers as we know them. Um, yeah. I personally don't see Rodgers moving for at least two years, though. Okay. Um, with I think his contract is three or four years. Um, he's 36 now. Um, I don't think he'll be moving until he's about 38. Uh, with how his contract is made up, I was reading a little bit yesterday. Um, they'll take less of a cap hit if they hold on to him for a year or two. Um, it just depends on how disgruntled he gets, I think. Yeah, this is an interesting thing. And I have, I'm going to go into this a little deeper. And Mike, being a quarterback, you can toss some relevance into the conversation we're about to go down. But there are certain fundamental things that are wrong with the Packers franchise. First of all, there's no owner. Okay, so there's from the GM down, there's nobody above there's nobody that's making more money than Aaron Rodgers in this, in the entire franchise. So that's first of all, there's nobody who's going to check him from a financial standpoint uh, in, in that, in that organization. And I also think without having an owner, you really do at times lack direction. I think that's how guys like LaFleur and Gutkunz or whatever this dude's name is get away with wasting draft picks like this. However, playing devil's advocate uh, a little bit here, 
Um, trying to look at it from how the Packers may possibly see this. I think this is a security measure. Okay. A couple of things that are in play here that don't play into Aaron Rodgers' favor. He's got a brand new head coach in Matt LaFleur who does not necessarily have any loyalties to Aaron Rodgers other than the fact that he just got there, you know, and he got him to the NFC championship game last year or whatever round of the playoffs they got knocked out. Yep, uh, Aaron is a, yeah, Aaron's a massive cap hit. And at this point in his career, you're only going to con continue to see him rack up more injuries. He's had collarbone operated on twice. He's had a couple of concussions. He had that scary knee injury where Khalil Mack almost tore his leg in half. And he had to cut my knee that game. So, like, he is getting more and more fragile. So, you bring in somebody to play better football than Deshaun Kaiser as the backup. But if you pair all that with his decline in productivity, whether that be from age or the new system that he's in, um, that was evident by the game plan last year. Maybe it is time. You look at the stats that are falling for him. His completion percentage is down. Touchdowns, down. Yards per attempt, down. QBR, down all over the last three years. Sat, uh, the stats for him that are on the rise are plays given up on or throwaways and the amount of sacks that he's taking, and they just lost Belaga. So I, I would like to think that Matt LaFleur could be looking at this as if Aaron doesn't get them to a certain point, if he doesn't meet a certain stat line or can't perform the offense in the way that Matt LaFleur truly wants to run his offense, the Packers still have the opportunity to sell high. Yeah, you're right. Maybe they do keep him for a year or two. But if it's not there, uh, Jordan Love's going to be a significantly significantly cheaper option. You're going to get plenty of pieces in return for a future legend like Aaron Rodgers. And if his play truly is diminishing, don't you want to get rid of him anyways in kind of a Belichickian sell-high type of deal? Like, do you think that there's any weight to that being the argument in the Green Bay Packers' back office? I personally don't think it has anything to do with Rodgers' production as much as it has to do with Lafleur's uh, philosophy as an offense. Um, you have to remember his mentor was Kyle Shanahan, who dismantled his Green Bay Packers in the NFC Championship game. He watched it on the sideline. He watched the Niners run, I want to say, 46 times and pass the ball eight. And they ran all over them. So he knows he doesn't need a Hall of Fame quarterback. That's what it comes down to, to me. I think it's Lafleur's going to hand the ball off 50 times a game. Rodgers is going to throw 15, maybe 20. And how pissed off does Aaron the crybaby get with it? Sorry, I think he gets fans, extremely. But, no, uh, I think uh, he gets. I think he gets extremely frustrated. You've seen him get frustrated over things that are of lesser value than this, um, and you can't blame the guy either. He's had. They've trotted out fifth and sixth round draft picks to be his wide receiving core for the majority of his career. Um, and but look at this draft. They he knew that they needed a receiver. I don't think did they take a receiver. I think they got one, but it was in the later rounds again. Yeah. Oh, no, it was a tight end. Yeah. Um, sure, they might sign Again, some undrafted no pigeons, but yeah, he's got no weapons. So this is just going to be, and I'm interested to see how this plays out. If I had to make a prediction right now, I would guess that Aaron Rodgers probably does get moved sometime between years one and three. Um, just Bold prediction. Bold prediction. I do, I, <laughs> I do think he gets moved. I just, I don't see it. I don't see them being able to patch this out. You saw how the little things affected his relationship with McCarthy. And the Packers have seemingly given the keys without an owner in place, like I said, sometimes hard to get structure, to LaFleur, and they're just going to run it out. So I guess it's, it's going to be – it's going to turn into a stalemate more than likely. I see Aaron leaving in two, after two seasons um, unless something hits the fan, to be honest with you. 
Yeah. It, it's kind of a cop out, but it's it's the truth. Like if if right. nothing hits the fan, it's going to be two years. I think they're not going to go through his whole contract. Um, I don't, and he's an angel. Even if he wins you a, a Super Bowl in year two, you can sell really high. Or if you do think he's got another four or five years in the tank. It's not like you can't still sell Jordan Love as a better polished product because he will have next to no game snaps. Right, do a Jimmy G with him. Got him at. Exactly. Uh, so that opportunity is there for them too. I don't hate the pick as much as I did initially for those reasons, um, but I don't. I don't think. I don't think Aaron's the guy, man. You're talking about a quarterback who's got a 42 and 46 record on the road over his career. Yeah. He's a losing quarterback on the road. Tom Brady, by the way, 97 and 44. So is he really elite? If he doesn't have home field advantage in the playoffs, is he really going to win you a playoff game? Those are the questions you have to ask when a quarterback's on the back nine of his career. Right. No, I mean, you bring up some great points. And actually, uh, one of the points that you brought up was that you are starting to kind of like that pick of Jordan Love, uh, which I think is a great segue into our next segment, uh, which we're going to call Stepped Up or Stepped Out. Uh, so what we're going to do here, Nick, is we're going to go through each division in football, AFC, NFC, North, East, South, and West. Uh, we're just going to pick a few teams out of each division uh, who we believe stepped up or stepped out with their draft selections. Got it? Absolutely. Let's get rolling. All righty, cool. So we're going to start with the AFC North. Uh, what do you think of the AFC North? Uh, as far as the AFC North goes, I've got uh, the only team in here that has really uh, stepped up, so to speak, I think is the Ravens. Uh, the first four picks that they used in the draft were to fill holes of guys that have left. Uh, Judon left, Pierce left. Um, so they replaced those two immediately. And then they got a replacement for Mark Ingram. And we saw in J.K. Dobbins, and then they, we saw at the end of last year when Mark Ingram went down without those reps and without a true second dominant back, how that offense can be stunted a little bit so I think this is going to do the job and when they get into a game with Kansas City um, shoring up or getting it just a little bit closer knowing that that's who they're going to have to go up against in the AFC um, I don't think I have a step out uh, in this division um, I think all the teams pretty much either stayed the same or uh, you know improved just enough but I don't think they stepped up enough to be a contender what did you think about the AFC North, Mike? Yeah, um, I actually don't have a stepped-out team in this division either. Um, I felt that the Steelers and Browns did just enough to kind of maintain what they're doing, maybe win a game or two more. Um, I did feel that the Ravens had a good draft, but I felt that the best draft of this division was actually the Bengals. Um, okay. Obviously, Joe Burrow, uh, listeners know how high I am on Joe Burrow. Um, I thought bringing in T. Higgins in the second round to supplement him, uh, bring him in another weapon, um, and then the – the supplementation throughout the rest of the draft, I think will help the Bengals. I see them maybe winning six or seven games this year, actually. Uh, and if the Burrow effect happens, like I think it might, they might just win nine or 10. Bold move. And we'll get into team records here eventually after free agency and OTAs and everything is short up, but uh, nine wins for the Bengals. Huh? Bold prediction. Yep. All right. We're going to move on. Uh, we'll go to the AFC East. Um, the only team that I actually have highlighted in this division as well is the Dolphins. Um, Again, I'm following a rookie quarterback. Um, I don't know if Tua will start this year, but I think that that move, uh, tanking for Tua for two years, they bought into it. I think that entire organization is on that kid's shoulders, and I think he can handle it. Um, so having Tua, um, the other two picks in the first round, Noah Ign Bonigby, I had to try it, uh, 
bringing him in uh, late to supplement. Uh, they have one of the best defensive backs, uh, def defensive back cores in the league today, probably. In my opinion. Yeah, so, I, would, I um, would agree with you. Moving forward, I think that they might just dominate the air uh, with Tua offensively and that defensive core um, on that side of the ball. So I think that that was a really good draft for the Dolphins as well. And you don't have a stepped-up team for that – or stepped-out team for uh, that division, huh? I don't. Um, I was flirting with the Patriots just because I didn't think that they did enough. But uh, with Belichick at the helm, I think that they just might find themselves being competitive in the AFC East. Yeah, okay. So it's interesting that you said that because my stepped-out team is actually the New England Patriots. Uh, I don't think they did enough to float that team into a success. They're going to take a massive step back. They didn't do enough. Uh, drafting impact players that is going to, that are going to continue to help them be a contender. So I have them taking a massive step back. I actually think for the first time in a while, they'll be a below 500 football team this year. Uh, and I think part of that has to do with one of the teams that I have that stepped up, which is going to be the Bills. Uh, you're talking about a team that through trade added Stefan Diggs. They went out and got another defensive line guy. So you're starting to see them spend a lot of their first round and early round talent on uh, the defensive line, just like the Niners. They were already a competitive roster. And if you look at how they filled it out, I think they did take a step forward, even though they were already a playoff team. I would have the Dolphins in here as well. But I just couldn't do it because Tua's not going to play this year. And I think some of the pieces that they uh, did get are going to have a much larger impact in year two than they are going to have in year one. That's right. Um, so that's who I've got in that division. All righty, so that brings us to the NFC South. Uh, why don't you start on this one? Yeah, okay, so for the AFC South, I have, as my stepped-up team, I have the Indianapolis Colts, okay? Uh, they drafted the weapons that they needed to be uh, alongside a team that already was pretty strong on the interior with their offensive and defensive lines uh, surrounding Phillip Rivers. I know a lot of what they do this year is going to depend on him, but also moving forward, having Jacob Eason, who may be a little bit more of a raw talent that's going to sit behind a guy like Phillip and uh, learn from a future Hall of Famer, and then the potential for them to possibly move Jacoby Brissett uh, for another piece. I think they did a fantastic job in the draft. Um, as far as who stepped out in that division, it's got to be the Texans. You can't help but throw in the D-hop trade here, and they had a lot of holes even before that trade happened, and then for them not to get the pieces that they needed on top of all of this, this is another team that I think is going to struggle because they just don't have enough firepower to keep up with a rapidly uh, improving division. Uh, would you agree with that? Uh, actually, those two comments that you made about those two teams, I agree with wholeheartedly. Uh, I think that the Colts stepped up uh, definitely. I think that the Colts could possibly win that division this year. Um, bringing in Phillip Rivers and then you know their first selection, Michael Pittman Jr., a wide receiver from S Southern California, great selection. Um, and then Jonathan Taylor, obviously recording. one of the best running backs out of Wisconsin uh, that we've seen. So surrounding Rivers with those weapons, um, I think definitely helps Indy's offense now. And like you said, for the future, uh, having Jacob Eason is definitely um, going to be beneficial. Like you said, possibly move Brissett as well. Um, Texans, though, definitely stepped out as well. When you look at what the moves that Bill O'Brien made, uh, moving all of those draft picks to try to bring in um, some talent. I just don't think that the talent that he brought in outweighs the draft picks that he sent out. Um, and I don't think that the Texans will be that great of a football team because of that. Um, one team that you didn't mention, though, that I do want to mention, uh, I think that the Jaguars stepped up as well. Um, bringing okay. back Gardner Minshew in the second season, um, surrounding him with like a weapon like LaVisca Chenault, 
um, from Colorado, I think could be very beneficial for him on the offensive side of the ball. And then their defense was what struggled last year, and that's what they went and um, beefed up. Um, yeah. Both of their first-round selections, um, the edge, Kalevon Chason from LSU, uh, mm-hmm. that man is a beast, um, and I think we're going to see it year one. Uh, C.J. Henderson from Florida, I think he'll be decent. Um, I think he will make an impact from day one. I just don't think it will be worthy of a top-ten pick, possibly, but I think he will still – um, help that defense. Yeah, and I guess they'll be a team to watch. Uh, they were just – I was a fence sitter with them. I didn't know whether or not the fact that I thought that they reached on a couple of picks warranted a step upgrade here. Um, but we can always keep an eyeball on them as you – our opinions obviously differ. Right. All right, so our last division in the AFC, AFC West, uh, with the reigning Super Bowl champs, Kansas City Chiefs. Who stepped up and who stepped out? Yeah, I actually got the Denver Broncos stepping up big here. If you look at what they've done over the course of their offseason, adding guys like Melvin Gordon, and then they went out and got Jerry Judy, and a couple of other pieces in the draft to surround a returning Drew Locke who is healthy and fiery, and John Elway's guy from everything that you looked at from their record at the at the end of the season last year, I think they're going to step up in that division and be a contender because you've got to remember, Chubb's going to be back, Von Miller will be back. That defense wasn't a bad defense. They just didn't necessarily have the vertical firepower to scare teams, and it left that defense on the field a lot that, uh, this last year. I don't think that's going to happen. So I think they stepped up big time, uh, and uh, the Chargers is the team for me that I have stepping back here. Um, you lose Phillip Rivers. You lose, you lose Melvin Gordon. Uh, you lose some, some key pieces. Justin Herbert probably isn't going to have the immediate impact that you need right away, and the rest of the draft doesn't make me confident that they're going to be able to get back attention either. Yeah, I do agree with the Chargers. Um, I don't technically have, in, have them steady, um, simply because I do think that they tried to fill their holes. I just don't think that they filled their holes aggressively enough, if that makes sense. Um, the yeah. one team in this division I do have stepping up, actually, um, and this may not be a popular opinion, is actually the Raiders. Um, and the reason being is because the Raiders continue on the John Gruden path. Um, one of the John Gruden's hits over his years was that he couldn't build a team. Um, and I think yeah. I am very interested to see this Raiders project paint out, man. Um, like I said, uh, after the first round, um, Rain and Henry Ruggs pairing him with Darren Waller, that offense is going to have some firepower this year. And then in the third round, they went and got Lynn Bowden Jr. Uh, from Kentucky, who was a hybrid receiver who went to quarterback and won a lot of games for him. Uh, this guy is yeah. electric. Um, he's a pure athlete coming out of college. Um, seeing John Gruden, I think he could get very creative with this guy. Um, and I think he brings a, a Tyreek Hill-esque almost um, mixed with almost a Taysom Hill aspect. Like the dude can throw yeah. too. Um, so I'm very curious to see what he does with him. Um, and then Brian Edwards uh, in the third round as well, just bringing in more weapons. Um, and then he beefed up that defense in the later round. So again, it's not maybe – an A plus draft. Like I said, it's not a popular opinion, but just seeing them continue down the John Gruden path um, and continue to buy into that makes that a good draft for me. Yeah, no, and I would agree with you. I don't have anything against the way that the Raiders did their draft this year. I just think that they didn't make, they didn't take the step that the Broncos took to be the second team in that division. I think they're going to be, you put them in a weaker division and they're probably the, the number one, a strong number two, but because of how strong that division is going to be through the top two teams this year, I just see them just missing on for this year. And he's got pieces that can go into next year too. I think year three is going to be his launch point. Hey, like you said, we'll get into records later. I, I, I disagree with you, but we'll get into that later. So let's switch 
switch over to the NFC here. Um, we'll go to our hometown Vikings division, the NFC North. Who do you have stepping up and stepping out? Uh, I had the Vikings stepping up here, and I'm not going to get into it too terribly much. Uh, I think that they filled all of the holes that they needed to fill. Uh, I know if you listened to last week's podcast, you guys probably know. I wasn't super happy with round one, but rounds two, three, four, five, six, all of them. They knocked it out from top to bottom. They recovered really well. I think, uh, and we're gonna, like I said, we're going to get into it. But every piece that they got is a piece that they can use, I think, all the way until the fifth round. They're going to be situational pieces that will get played this year. Uh, and then my step-out team, uh, of course, is going to be the Green Bay Packers. They had the worst draft of any team. You're talking about a team that was in the NFC Championship game and just needed a couple of pieces. And what did they do? They doubled up at quarterback. They got a third running back. They got a second tight end in the first three rounds. That's just not something that's going to be able to impact. So I got them taking a large step back as well. I see that you have a team in here that I didn't think you'd have stepping up. Yeah. Um, so uh, just like you, uh, I do have the Vikings stepping up. And like you said, we'll get into that a little with a little bit more detail here in just a minute. Um, and I do have the Packers stepping out. Uh, when your best two players are your quarterback and running back, that shouldn't be your top two selections in the draft. Um, yeah. So that was interesting to me. Uh, the one team that, like you said, uh, I do have stepping up is the Lions. And the reason I have the Lions stepping up is uh, they continue to buy into that Matt Patricia philosophy. Um, they're surrounding Stafford with weapons. Um, bringing in Jeff Kuda to replace uh, Big Play Slay, I think, was the right move kind of the only move at three that they could ha could do there. Um, but their second-round selection, DeAndre Swift, um, I think brings an electricity to that offense that they haven't really seen in a little while. Um, yeah. And then bringing Julian Aquara in the third round, um, you know, his brother being in the NFL before him, I think that he will be a successful edge for them. Um, and then they beefed up the offensive line moving forward as well. So I do think that the Lions had a good draft and took that step forward that almost might make them the second-best team in the NFC North this season. Yeah, I actually wouldn't disagree with that. I don't think the Bears did anything special, and they have two quarterbacks, and you know the saying, if you have two quarterbacks, you have none. And with the Packers taking such a step back and possibly seeing more than just a roster uh, diminishment from Green Bay, but also seeing maybe a divide in the locker room that the Lions could move up to number two this year. I didn't even think about that until you mentioned it. That's a very good observation. All right, so we're going to move to the NFC East. Um, I actually don't have any teams stepping up in the NFC East. I know a lot of analysts are very high on the Cowboys draft, which personally I think it's because their name is the Dallas Cowboys and it has nothing to do with their draft. Um, and I, I personally didn't like the draft very much, um, but I don't see them stepping out of that 8-8 eight and eight area where they always are. Um, the team that I do have stepping out, though, because I simply think that they wasted the capital that they had, was the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, I think that the Eagles have enough talent to possibly, obviously, go back to the Super Bowl and be a high-end contender in the NFC. Um, not if you continue to draft like this, though. Um, yeah. Obviously, they, they needed to fill a void at receiver. Uh, they didn't have any receivers for Carson Wentz uh, towards the end of the year last year. And with Justin Jefferson still on the board, you go with Jalen Rager. Um, swing and a miss, bud. Uh, and then yeah. you have one of the best young quarterbacks in the league, yeah, he does have an injury issue, um, but he is one of the best young quarterbacks in the league, and you go get Jalen Hurts in the second round. Now you have a possibly divided locker room and a weird, weird quarterback controversy moving forward, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, part of me starts to wonder how long before Carson Wentz starts to go, hey, can we stop bringing in backups that might dethrone me at some point, please? Like, I'm the franchise guy you paid me. Um, 
in Philadelphia, I, here's the thing. I don't have a step-up or step-out team in this division, actually. I think that the seedings and how this thing played out last year is how it's going to continue to play out. Uh, I like that the Cowboys went out and got Diggs as a corner. Do I think he was one of the best corners in the draft? Absolutely not. I think he's got a lot of holes in his game. Um, and I don't think that anybody else – I mean, the Redskins added Chase, but Chase Young, but they don't have – they're not even sure if they have their quarterback. The Giants missed in round one not taking the best tackle of it. I just don't see movement. I see this being status quo for this division, so I actually don't have a step up or a step out here. That's fair. All right, uh, moving to the NFC South. Um, I'll take this one first. Uh, my step out team, um, I believe they won the division last year, was the New Orleans Saints. Um, I don't see them winning the division this year. Um, when you have an aging roster a little bit with Drew Brees at your helm, you need to go and beef up your weapons and make sure that he is protected. Um, and they went and drafted a center in the first round who I don't even know if is going to see the field this year. Um, yeah. If you're a contender, you can't do that. And I think it's a big mistake on their part. Um, the team that I see stepping up and obviously stepping up in a big way uh, throughout uh, the nation and in the NFL is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Obviously bringing mm-hmm. Brady and Rob Gronkowski uh, through free agency um, and trades. And then in the draft, you do a great job of supplementing what you've done in free agency. Um, trading up to get Tristan Wirfs, who I think could possibly be one of the best tackles in the draft. Um, I think Antoine Winfield Jr. in the second round was a steal. Um, he's yeah. a late first round talent, in my opinion. Um, I think Kayshawn Vaughn from Vanderbilt could fit into that offense pretty well. They didn't really have a running back. They filled that hole quite well. Um, and then I think Tyler Johnson in the fifth round, again, a possible late second round talent um, selected in the fifth round. Um, so I think that they did a great job of really just bringing this piece together for Tom to make a run in Tampa Bay. Yeah. I don't know if me and you are just like captaining like the SS obvious here, but the Bucks definitely stepped up. Um, you're talking about a team that they got Brady and they said, okay, we got two years to make this fucking thing happen. And they're going to make it happen. They went out and got the tackle to protect him. They got the deep coverage that they may not have had last year, which is going to help out that linebacking core, which is already pretty good. Um, They got a running back, Tyler Johnson. May not be the most physically threatening guy in the entire draft, but he's got short hands. He's a good route runner, and he's got high football IQ. Tom Brady likes those guys, and he's going to absorb that offense. So um, I've got them stepping up as well. And on the rare terms where we actually agree, I think the Saints – is the other team outside of the Packers that took quite a step back as well. I'm also going to lump in here the fact that they signed Taysom Hill to a $10.5 million contract extension, and then they went out and brought in Jameis Winston. So you've got a ton of money invested in your quarterbacks. When you had other holes and you weren't that close to the cap, it just doesn't make sense to me for a team. I mean, do they give it up? Maybe they're just sick of getting beat by the Vikings every year. (laughs) <laughs> but if you're waiting for us to fall apart with how well we drafted, it's going to happen again this year if they make the playoffs because they just don't have the depth now to make it happen. So I got them stepping back as well. Awesome. And our last division for stepped up or stepped out, the NFC West. Um, I personally don't have anybody moving in this division, actually. I think the, the Niners, um, although their draft wasn't great, I think that's a talented enough football team to maintain – dominance on the top of the NFC West because the Seahawks had a very status quo draft as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the only team that I may like be on the verge of kind of a step up here, but I don't think it steps them up into contention. It steps them up from the worst team in the division to the third best team in this division was going to be the Cardinals. 
Um, and that's because they went and got a they got a game changer on defense. They did uh, sure up the interior of that defensive line with both those defensive tackles. Those guys may not be ready to play this year, but keep in mind with the reps that they're going to get, it's going to be trial by fire. And if either one of them hits, you're looking at another value pick that they got in Arizona. Um, so I think that they were the closest thing to a step up. And the same thing I could say about the Rams. They didn't necessarily step down or step out on their draft, but I don't think that they really did anything to help themselves either. Uh, so pretty status quo division. I don't think, I think there's a wide margin between the Niners and the Hawks and then the Cardinals and the Rams. This year. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, let us know where you think we missed. Um, if you think there's a team that stepped up or stepped out that we totally whipped on, um, let us know. Um, we're going to move on to our analysis of the Vikings draft. Uh, dive into that just a little bit deeper. Um, we did have 15 picks this year, which is an NFL record, I believe. Um, what do you yes. think of the draft, Nick? Um, I liked it. I'm gonna I'm gonna put this quote in here. Rick Spielman was interviewed after the draft closed, uh, and they, he was asked about the amount of picks that the Vikings have, and he said, based on where our franchise is at, it's just a sign of the times. So my worry about the Vikings not being aware of some of the issues that they were going to have with cap restraints were very much solved with what they did in this draft. Okay, um, they got a volume of a wide variety of picks to add depth. And I think that had a lot to do with the fact that they know that their starting rotation outside of a couple of things is pretty sure up. And this was a plan for the future draft. Are any of these late round guys going to hit awesome? We've got them at a discount. Justin Jefferson's going to fill a void. Um, Jeff uh, Gladney's going to fill a void at, at, uh, on defense. And then to go get Ezra Cleveland because they couldn't get a deal done for Trent Williams. I like Ezra Cleveland. He's got a rapport already with Alexander Madison. I think that's going to allow him to come along a little bit quicker in the offense, and I think we'll see him start this year. Did that uh, and then, that. Yeah, and then Cam Dantzler. Um, Cam Dantzler's a fantastic corner, really raw. I said the same thing about Gladney. Zimmer's got a really good track record of taking some of these guys with outstanding physical tools and getting them to understand the mental aspect of, of the game. And I think he winds up playing the nickel for us. Uh, this year with his size, his, his size and his aggressiveness. Um, and then all the way down through the, gra- the draft, um, another guy that I liked was James Lynch out of Baylor. His draft profile, not explosive, lacks athleticism. I watched a video that the Vikings tweeted out, uh, what was it, like three hours after they drafted him, reading his scouting report. The dude's doing standing backflips and single-led pistol squat box jumps. Like, lacks explosiveness my ass. He was Baylor's like, all-time I, leading sack, like all, uh, yeah, all-time leading sack leader. So I don't know where that comes from. Um, I, yeah, I, so, man, I, I think it was a great draft. Um, I think Justin Jefferson. We kind of disagreed about that one personally, but I think that was a that, that was a great pickup. Um, he's a top ten talent in this draft class, I think, um, and I think we're going to see that. I think with his technique, he's kind of a technician, kind of slides right into what Diggs was. Um, mm-hmm. Diggs wasn't really. I'm just going to beat you with my speed. Um, he was a technician, route runner, um, used head fakes, and that's kind of what Jefferson brings to the table as well. Um, I don't know about Gladney. Um, that's kind of my one maybe. Those like first four or five picks. Um, mm-hmm. I personally think Dantzler will actually turn out better than Gladney, um, and I think we could possibly see Dantzler on the outside actually with his size. Um, I, I I I I think that we might actually see Holton Hill on the outside um, with with Cameron Dantzler. Um, and I think that that could be the duo that we see moving forward uh, with Mike Hughes in this slot, uh, filling that nickel void. Um, 
that's a possibility. I, I do like the Cleveland move as well. Um, when we failed to bring in Trent Williams, uh, you know, bringing in Ezra Cleveland, we definitely needed to shore up that tackle spot. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, what do we do? You know, I, I liked O'Neal. I liked Reef as well. Um, so where, where, where are we going to go with Cleveland there? So I think, I think you start Cleveland and you slide Reef down just due to an age thing and an experience thing. He's going to see things right away from a run game standpoint. Reef probably will that Cleveland isn't going to uh, just due to the amount of snaps that he's played reading and understanding the linebackers and who he's played against for a couple of years now is probably going to be the wiser decision. And there that, that gives you your starting five and fills in that other hole at guard, so to speak, that we have. Yeah, I'm very curious to see who our starting guards are, actually. Um, I read an article this morning that there is going to be a free-for-all at the guard spot. Um, oh, yeah. So, Elfline, you know, you do have Drew Samia and Udo that you drafted last year as well. Um, so it's it's going to be interesting. It's going to be a good camp for the Vikings, I think, at, at the offensive line spot. Let's not forget, you know, Kyle Hinton and Blake Brandell, who we brought in later rounds either. Yeah, and they all have uh, a chance to play. Hinton, I think, I honestly – I don't think he makes the roster. I hope he does. I like what I saw. He was a tackle in college, right? Undersized yes. tackle, yeah. 6'2 yep. tackle. So he'll probably be a guard in the NFL if he makes the team. Yeah. Um, so it's just, like I said, 15 picks. So what the Vikings have done is they've gone, okay, if we hit on 25 or 33% of these guys and we got five future starters out of 15 picks, a lot of those guys are going to be underpaid and it's going to help us with our cap issues. So I like that. Um, who do you think the best value pick is uh, on this board? And who do you think the worst value pick is on this board based on where we got the guy and who it is? Um, my best value is going to be between – probably between DJ Wanham and James Lynch. Um, both defensive linemen, DJ Wanham, defensive end from South Carolina, um, reminds me a lot of Daniil Hunter when he was first drafted. Um, tall, lean – uh, long, uh, very, very strong, uses his athleticism to get to the quarterback. Um, I hope we see him develop in a similar way. Um, obviously, if we see him develop in the same way, um, we, we would have probably one of the best foursomes up front yeah. uh, in the NFL. Uh, but James Lynch from Baylor as well. Um, this is kind of an interesting pick um, just because he kind of played the middle of the field for Baylor a lot um, and then would slide out occasionally. So he does have versatility. Um, he's kind of a 3-4 tackle coming to our 4-3 scheme, so I am curious to see how that shakes out, but I do think he could fill in that, like, 3-3-I three, three spot pretty well, um, coming off that guard. Um, hopefully penetrating to the quarterback, like you said, he does actually bring some athleticism at 315 pounds, I believe. Yeah. So hopefully he, he gets some penetration straight up the middle um, with bringing Hunter off the edge. I think that could could mean some sacks for our Vikings defense this year. Yeah, and he's going to have the right guy to learn under, too. you got to remember, Michael Pierce is a perennial pro bowler. You're talking about a guy who is a like a man-eater up front, um, and for him to learn behind a talent like that, I think what we're going to see is the edge guys that we got, one of them is going to turn into a pass rush specialist, and then on rundowns, you're going to see the insertion of James Lynch to eat up blockers and allow guys like Eric Kendricks and, and – uh, proficient tacklers like Anthony Barr to get in the backfield and play flow sideline to sideline freely without getting caught up in traffic. Um, to those third and short situations, which I know we struggled with at times from time to time last year. Um, me personally, I think our best value pick was Ezra Cleveland. I didn't realize how good this guy was until he came off the board. 
everybody raved about last year how many rushing yards uh, Madison had when he was at when he was in his final year at Boise State. A lot of that they were running behind Ezra Cleveland um, to to that side. So I like that pick. Uh, the only pick that I guess I uh, my worst valued pick possibly would probably be Josh Metellus out of Michigan. I just don't see it as a guy who's going to make the roster or possibly be an impact unless it's well, on special teams maybe. Um, and that's even going to be a coin flip because I think that's going to go to K.J. Osborne, the receiver we got out of Miami. Yeah, see, the the one uh, thing about Metellus is you remember, we only have two safeties on our roster right now, and Anthony Harrison – Harrison Smith. Now, I could see Harrison Hand actually going to safety because of his length and speed um, and tackling ability. He could be the slot corner, but because of his tackling ability, I could see him going back to safety as well. Um, I did not say my miss. I think we missed on Jeff Gladney. Um, I just don't like his size. I know he plays big, and he's he seems ferocious. You know, interviewed, you know, asked about his size. He says, I don't care if it's a six, five dude across from me, he's going to feel me. Um, I think he's going to feel the NFL um, to be honest with you. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, like I said, uh, this, and he could be, but like I said, I think you got to give the benefit of the doubt to a guy who specializes in defensive backs and at head coach, being able to hide some of his weaknesses and bring out his strengths wherever he gets played on the field. He may not be an every down guy. He may not be a number one corner, but I don't think he needs to be. That's fair. All righty, folks. Um, that uh, brings us to the end of our show for today. Uh, thank you for joining MN Sports Talk. We look forward to your feedback from today's topics. Uh, please let us know on our social medias. And I, we hope that you join us for episode six on Friday, May 1st. All righty. Have a wonderful rest of your day, guys. Uh, share with your friends and enjoying the content. Me and Mike would love to continue to keep doing this um, and share the knowledge and the opinions that we have with just about everybody. So, enjoy the content give it a share it's much appreciated and have a wonderful start to your week